Well, welcome to Palm Sunday in September. Here we go, because we preach through books of the Bible, and this is where the Lord has brought us in Mark chapter 11, a strategic transition point in Mark's gospel, now standing as we are with Jesus at the top of the hill and his disciples and the crowds and those gathering into Jerusalem for the great feast of the Passover one week in advance, Friday of next Friday, the cross. So the title this morning is, you know, Hail the King, exclamation, question, exclamation. Hail the King, really? I mean, is this the King? This guy, this blue-collar carpenter from northern New Mexico riding into town on a donkey that I'm sure we all would have said, oh yeah, definitely, that's him, that's the one. This text is affectionately referred to as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, whereon he takes upon himself and receives from the people the mantle of king. But what, I mean, what is a triumphal entry, really? We don't see many of these in our day. I'm sure most of us were thinking about brothers and sisters across the pond this week at the passing of Queen Elizabeth, watching footage of her life, parades and processions. Now that is a triumphal entry right there. At weddings and ceremonies, or perhaps a bit closer to home, when your NFL team actually wins. If you're a Bills fan... This last week, triumphal entry, but we don't get too excited. Uh, I feel like this last month, I got to witness two beautiful triumphal entries. So different than the pomp and circumstance and power and flourish that one might expect in a worldly display of triumph. That's part of what Mark is getting at to here is that this is a different kind of king. This is an upside-down kingdom. This is one that messes with and, and dismantles all of our faulty expectations, even when we say the right religious words, and actually in their place provides something better. In the last week, we had two memorial services here, one for our blessed sister, Miss Norma Mendez, and another for, for Tony and Amy Spaeth's mom, Amy's mom, Helen, affectionately known as Honey. Myself and a few others had the honor and the privilege of viewing the triumphal entry firsthand. I was at the bedside of both of these incredible women 24 hours before they passed from this mortal coil and their spirits now united with Christ, awaiting the fullness of the resurrection. And although the world might say, Small, weak, precious older ladies in an insignificant city like Santa Fe, in homes where this was happening and you had no idea. In fact, it is actually the display of the power of the glory of God. These old saints who knew the faithfulness of Jesus their entire life and even up until their last breath trusted that it was not an end but a beginning. That is a triumphal entry. That's what Mark is getting us to here. Not swords, not chariots, not our titles, power, pleasure, our portfolios, all the things that we have surrounding us, which often lead us to believe erroneously that we're okay and secure. But instead, the promises of 1 Corinthians 15, seen as it were in the silent and joyful passing into eternity of two amazing Older saints, where, O oh, death, is your sting? 
Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? They are swallowed up in the finished work of Christ. And so Mark wants us to ask the question of this Jewish carpenter from Galilee who's made the ascent to Jerusalem, riding in now down the Man of Olives toward the temple gate into Jerusalem. Is this a triumph? Really? Because in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like a triumph. But, you know, I've preached this text quite a few times. Most pastors do in different gospels because all the gospels record the story. And I used an illustration here a few years ago, and I'm happy to say I still have a job after I said this out loud. So I'll, I'll do it again. Uh, Mark begs the question of us that we might laugh with the Romans. Could this really be a king? Are you kidding me? The religious leaders are sitting there with their arms crossed. This Jesus is a rebel rouser. We want no part of him. We've written him off. And the Romans are going, you've got to be kidding me. But let's make the preparations we need to make uh, to ensure we don't have an an insurrection here. But if we do, fear not, because we will put it down swiftly and with force. This king comes in. He's not riding a horse. He doesn't have a sword drawn. There's no battle armor. I said it would be like in our own day as if a suspicious refugee claiming to be the king rode proudly into Washington, D.C. with a ramshackle bunch of farmers on a Russian moped. (laughs) And I still have a job. Praise you, Lord. So this gets to, to, it focuses on the nature of our fallen conditions that we want a king in our way, our time, our terms. Our expectations of what God should do for us, when he should do it, and how we should do it. Because every single one of these folks, with all of their good intentions, even saying the right Hosanna words, was expecting that this one would come in and finally be that political leader they've been waiting on. Finally be the right president at the right time to pass the right laws and, you know, a strong man to get it done. Coming into Jerusalem to overthrow the tyranny of Roman slavery and oppression, it would be Pharaoh 2.0, And thus, they celebrate. Their schemes and their machinations are so right. He's the king. They're so right. Hosanna, save us. And they're so wrong. (laughs) They're just like us. It's not power as we might expect. A king of our own design. But it's the plan of God through Christ the king that we most deeply need. Not a political leader to deal with a temporary group of folks occupying our land, but the king and kings and lord of lords who can deal with the deepest problem of our hearts, which is that we are separated from a holy God because of our sin, and he longs to reconcile us. Something bigger is in play here. And so this secret, what scholars refer to as the Markin secret, Mark's messianic secret now is finally being revealed. He is showing us this new king, who he is, why he is, and dare I say, in this text, Mark is providing for you and for me in 2022 copious amounts of hope. I mean, most Sundays when I come to church, I'm doing pretty good. But it is easy, isn't it, to to kind of get stuck in how am I feeling? We live in a very therapeutic age. Uh, You know, sort of the platonic ideal that is now held up To a generation is the therapeutic man. 
If you feel good about what you're doing and it's exciting and it's fun and you're expressing yourself as an individual, then that is the most true thing in the universe and you have realized. You've self-actualized. And so we swim in that water. We all come into a place like this with our own subjective brokenness, our wounds, our fears, our thoughts, little arrows of condemnation that sneak into the head uninvited. That's what's inside churning in our stomachs. And what's outside is the news and our circumstances and what you saw as you drove in this morning. And so part of what Mark is doing here, showing us the true and greater king of Israel and the Israel of God, the whole church and the whole world, part of what Mark is doing is he's saying, let me lift up your heads. As we focus on King Jesus, as we talk about King Jesus, as we look at what he has done in history, it's, it's not to get rid of your little, your feelings and subjective needs. It's not to blind us from our circumstances so that we can, you know, be separatists and climb to the top of the hill and meditate away all the pain in the world. No. It's precisely the opposite. It's that God wants to deal with all of those things. And the injustice of sin in the world, not through anything you can well up within yourself, therapeutic man, but instead by lifting our heads up to see Christ, the object of our faith. And I think our text does that. Shows us who our king really is for us, the object and anchor of our faith in three ways. First of all, we see that our king fulfills his promises. Secondly, we see that our king receives the praise that is due his name. And thirdly, our king reveals his purpose. Our king fulfills his promises. Why does Mark spend seven verses in this text all about a two guys going to look for a donkey. Two Jews on a search for a donkey. Seven verses in our text. Well, as one scholar, Grant Osborne, has said, this text is a cornucopia of deliberate, prophetic, symbolic action. That sounds like something you'd put in a scholarly thing, doesn't it? Like, can you translate that? Well, the translation is that the fulfillment of the promises of God from the Old Testament are all over this text. And it's one story. The Old Testament is a testimony that testifies. The New Testament is also a testimony that testifies. Both testaments are testimonies that testify to one thing. Jesus. God is going to fulfill his forever plan to bring his people back into the garden, to wipe away every tear of sin, to raise them up from the dead, to reign as first Adam and Eve should have forever with him, reconciled in perfect vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationship with one another, God is going to do that through the coming of his king, the Messiah. We see this deliberate, prophetic, symbolic action in at least two important ways. The first is the place where we find ourselves in the text. Uh, the end has come, and the disciples of Jesus have made their way all the way to Jerusalem. We are now in the third act of Mark's gospel. The first act is, is really the astonishment of the people, both Jews and Gentiles, at the works and the miracles of Jesus, his words and his deeds, that he is king over both nature, the physical realm, and uh, the spiritual realm. The second act, which we've just finished, is th that of uh, the astonishment of the disciples. Oh, there's so much hope for us. Thank God there's a guy like Peter in the Bible, right? The rich guy, I mean, if, well, if he can't get into heaven, who can? You know, John and James, well, I want to sit here, and I want to sit here in the place of honor in heaven. And, and again and again, Jesus is answering their questions, confounding their expectations, 
and progressively revealing more and more about who he is. But now we're in Jerusalem, the final week of the life of Jesus, the climactic moment, on to the cross, chapter 11 through the end of Mark's gospel to 16. And I want you to just think, I mean, some of you have actually been to Israel, some of you can just Google it, about what it might have been like to go from Jericho, one of the lowest cities in the world, 800 feet below sea level, some of us would be marathoners there, right, coming from Santa Fe, all the way up to 3,000 feet Mount Zion, where the holy city of God resides, Jerusalem. And can you just imagine what it would be like as they crest that final hill and they see before them, as it were, the glory of God, the book of nature, so all the beauty of the olive trees and the land of milk and honey, and, and the book of scripture, the temple of God, the presence of God, the place where they come to make atonement, right there. The sun is shining, the people are rejoicing, it's glory. And there are no accidents that Jesus has come to Jerusalem, this place, at this time, Passover, it is party time. It is a time of great expectation where the people have come to get themselves right with God at his temple that they might receive the Passover of God. It is a place where the people of God know that they can receive his love and forgiveness through the sacrificial system. And Jesus is about to do something even greater than they could ever imagine. I've said this before, but again, the Bible is one book, Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. One book, one story, it all points to Jesus. And so we have to remember that in the Old Testament, every goat, every ram, every lamb, every dove, every pigeon, every little seed of grain that was offered to Yahweh at his tabernacle and his temple, these things are placeholders. The book of Hebrews tells us this clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ passed over these former things because one day one would come, a pure and perfect spotless lamb who could actually deal with the sins of the world, right? Not the blood of goats and rams. That doesn't actually deal with sin. You need God to come and do the dealing with sin because only God can bear the weight of sin in the face of God's own holiness. That's why this place, Jerusalem, is the exact place that Jesus had to come to finish his work as the lamb. He fulfills his promise. Not only at the place, but also through this prophecy. Some of you know that uh, the prophecy that's played out here uh, with the untying of the colt that had never been ridden, the donkey, we read it in our call to worship, is in Zechariah 9.9. A section of scripture affectionately titled the coming of Zion's king. It's the second half of the book of Zechariah. Like most of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, you have cycles of judgment followed by cycles of restoration. So it's a really dangerous thing when you, you, know, you go out on a windy day and let, you know, let God open your Bible for you to like Isaiah 41, and then you read it and you're like, it's about me. No, <laughs> it's not. But what it is, what it is and this will help you, is as you come to the prophets, realize that what the prophets are doing is they are speaking judgment against evil and sin in the world and idolatry, and then they are speaking hope. Cycles of judgment, cycles of hope and restoration. In Zechariah 9, we find ourselves at the beginning of a cycle of hope, wherein very specific and direct prophecies are mentioned about the Messiah who will come. 
The first thing we see is that this guy is riding on a colt. Why? Again, why not a war horse? You would ride a colt, interestingly, a donkey, not out to a battle, but after a victory was won, it was common for kings in the ancient Near East to ride a colt back into their home city to celebrate that a time of peace had come. Jesus is showing us in the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that he is the peacetime king, the prince of peace. He's not come to overthrow Roman tyranny. He's come to do something way better than that. Bring humankind peace with the true and living God. He is the living embodiment of God's promise of peace and shalom. This is the king who brings an end to all true and real wars. Not the ones out there, but the ones in our heart that no matter how deeply we try, we can never control. Jesus fulfills this prophecy in a very particular way. You know, some scholars debate about whether or not the cult was arranged beforehand or it was the supernatural foresight of Jesus. I tend to lead toward the latter interpretation. It doesn't make sense that they would just have arrived and made a plan in advance. But what matters as far as Jesus riding this cult, choosing this cult, the disciples finding it, and everything working to plan, what matters is the sovereign freedom by which he acts. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he has come to do. He has come to fulfill the promises of God. And Zechariah 9 also cues us in to how he's going to do this as the sovereign king. He is both powerful and gentle. He is strong and he is the Savior. It is in this way that the will of the king of kings will be done. In fact, one commentator even pointed out the fact that Jesus agrees to return the donkey cues us into the fact that he doesn't rule like the other kings of the earth. He doesn't rule like the other altars and the other idols. You have to just keep putting stuff up there. Oh, the nature of all the religions that men have invented over the years with their robes and bedazzlement and pointy hats. Just keep giving, do, strive more. No, the new king is not like that. And so down to the last detail, he works it out to fulfill all the promises of God from the Old Testament because they pointed to him in the first place. As we confess together in the Heidelberg Catechism, no, in all things we know they must work together for our salvation. That's what's on display here in the fulfillment of these prophecies. And I found this quote this week that I liked, a little bit about prophecy. In 1958, a mathematician and astronomer named Peter W. Stoner and another guy, professor of physics and math named Robert C. Newman, wrote a book basically entitled Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of the Prophecy of the Bible. Now, take this with a grain of salt, but it's interesting nonetheless. They determined that the odds, you know, on whatever current probability theory was extant, you know, in the 1960s, that Jesus could have fulfilled just eight, eight of the very specific and particular Old Testament prophecies that one man could have fulfilled all those specific things in the ancient Near East was about one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, he gives us some help here, and it's apropos for our church, since we have a lot of folks here from our next-door neighbors. To help readers understand the vastness of this number, it's totally meaningless, right? 10 with 17 zeros after it. Stoner said, take, 
it would be enough silver dollars to cover the entire face of the state of Texas two feet deep. To help readers understand the enormity of the odds, 1, 10 to the 17, he tells them to consider making one coin or marking with a black X one coin and randomly placing it in the state of Texas somewhere. The odds of a blindfolded man heading out of Dallas by foot in random directions, actually picking up that one specifically marked silver dollar on his first try is one out of 10 to the 17. These are the odds for just eight of the estimated 60 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Imagine the odds of one man, Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilling them all. Now, if you come to that story with, you know, a a little bit of skepticism, I understand that, but I want to commend to you, uh, and let's, you know, let's go out and have coffee and talk about it, the the reality of that. I mean, there are specific, not ambiguous, not, oh, he'll be a nice guy. It's just very specific, direct, and detailed prophecies in the Old Testament. And Jesus seemingly and somehow fulfills them all. He not only fulfills, but is the promise of God. Secondly, we see that our king receives the praise of the people. This would have been a radical and scandalous thing to do. You just know the religious leaders are standing on the other side of the hill, shaking their heads and wagging their fingers. That Jesus would not correct and or interrupt the praises of the people coming to him, exalting him as the king, is deeply telling about what kind of king he's going to be. He he doesn't shirk away from these promises. He sits on the colt, he rides down, he owns it, he accepts the praise. Perhaps this is part of what got Jesus crucified. We see two things here that show us just the, I don't know, the substantial nature and importance of the sort of praise he receives. Two things in our text. First of all, the cloaks and the palms. I just want to point out here that th- this would not have been a normal thing to, to do. It, in the ancient Near East, it wasn't like us where you could go to H&M and get a pair of socks for 80 cents, and then when it, you know, it gets hit by rain and disintegrates, you just get another pair. They didn't have fast fashion. A person's cloak was a very important and expensive part of their wardrobe. The roads in the ancient Near East were dusty, and so for these folks to throw cloaks on the road, to go out and go cut down palm branches and other reeds and bring them to be waved at Jesus, this was not a normal thing. This isn't what you, you didn't do this when Uncle Bob came to town. They are for us, as it were, symbolizing a royal victory parade. Think of Caesar himself riding into Rome after a battle on a chariot. These are signs of respect and love and honor for a king. One commentator put it, cloaks on the road symbolize the crowd's submission and acknowledgement of Jesus as their king. The scene harkens back to 2 Kings chapter 9, where Jehu is anointed king, and out of respect and honor, cloaks are laid on the ground, a royal red carpet laid out. Simultaneously, the branches symbolized Jewish expectation and nationalism, significant military victory. And this is how the crowds would have understand, understood Jesus' entry. We see the cloaks and the palms, and then we hear their cries. And I kind of wish we had the kids in here still, because I would make them stand up and start crying out Hosanna, and they would do it, and they would do it like you're supposed to do it, 
Not like us, a bunch of, you know, curmudgeonly tired adults who know what the social, social norms are. These are people who are filled with joy. Hosanna. It's right out of Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Indeed, it's the psalm where the verse is mentioned that the stone that is rejected will become the cornerstone. Again, the beauty here is that these people are saying the right things. They believe it. They're so right. And yet what they think is going to happen is so wrong. Will they trust the king? (laughs) Psalm 118 was often sung by pilgrims as they came to festivals and ascended the hill to Jerusalem. The key key refrain in that psalm, Jesus knows all of this. He's receiving all of it. The key refrain in Psalm 118 is, his steadfast love endures forever. They're thinking, finally, get rid of the Romans, just like we do. Finally, get rid of my problems. I've got nine problems. I need you to get rid of them, Lord. It's her, it's him, it's my job, it's my bank account, it's all these things. It's all these Romans. And instead, what Jesus has in mind is to actually excavate the real brokenness and the real problem of the heart and deal not only with sin, but death itself and put death to death forever. Hosanna is an interesting word. Uh, One commentator pointed out, and I found this interesting, that we often, in our modern parlance, liken it to the word hallelujah, right? Praise be to Yahweh. We use Hosanna often as a declaration of praise, but it is actually a plea for salvation. Hosanna means save us, save us now. Lord, we beg you to save us now. It comes from a combination of two Hebrew root words, yasha, deliver, and ana, to beg or beseech. So yasha, ana, hosanna. Lord, please deliver us. One thing we find with these folks is that they know their need. I think it's a little harder for us sometimes in 21st century America to really know our need, to know you know, to know what it is to be under this sort of oppression. They know their need. And, and so as Jesus comes now, entering the city on this donkey, fulfilling the promises, receiving the praise, it's not merely, God, we praise you, it's we beg you to save us. We need your help. And this comes to a fever pitch in the, in the cry of, blessed be the one who comes in the name of David. Remembering the covenant promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God told David, there will be a king who sits on your throne and rules over my people and helps you and loves you and this king will rule forever. And they're wondering, could this be the one? Crying out Hosanna, not even knowing what they mean, coming to the city to get cleansed and right in the temple before the Passover, doing all of these right things in so many wrong ways just like us. And so I think the key, really the key to understanding Jesus receiving the praise is this. Jesus accepting their praise means he is also readying himself to accept their sin. He knows that their genuine cries of, I beg you to save me, are not going to mean what they think they're going to mean. (laughs) Not at all. He also knows that they're going to get right at the temple you know, and get cleansed before the Passover is going to be no good, from them, good for them except they come to God by grace through faith alone. And so by Jesus accepting their praise, their laud, their honor as the king, 
it means he is also preparing himself to accept the fullness of their sin. Jesus doesn't only own his role as the king, he also owns us, his frail and faltering subjects. He owns us when we think we've got it right and we've got it wrong. He owns them, he owns us in their time of need. No one but God should be able to accept these words. So Jesus receiving their praise, receiving the hosannas, receiving the fact that he is the true and greater King David, the keeper of the covenant, the king to reign on the throne, it's either blasphemy or it's the key to this passage that will be unfolded for us in the week to come. And finally, our king reveals his purpose. That he isn't just merely a good teacher of nice sayings, a collector of proverbs and aphorisms so that you can have a better day, you know, collected on the sides of coffee cups. He's not a political revolutionary. He hasn't come for half of the pie. He is the true prophet, priest, and king, and he has come for all of it. We see this. He enters the holy city in this final verse. What a strange way to end this little uh, paragraph here. He enters the holy city. He goes straight to the temple. Why? Well, the temple is the place of God's presence. It's God's house. It's his father's house, and he's the son. And what does he do? We're told he looks around. So he's come in with these great cries and rejoicing, and then he you know, kind of sneaks into the city, goes to the temple, and looks at everything. He reveals his purpose to us in this, and we'll hear more about it as, as John preaches next week. It seems anticlimactic, but it's not, because when Jesus looks around at the temple, it's not a passive act. It's a reminder to us that he hasn't just come to, to play games, but he is the priest king. He has come with a single purpose and a single plan. When Jesus looks around at everything, as one scholar puts it, he's not a pilgrim in the city, but the sovereign Lord who will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus is fulfilling again, as it were, the words of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He looks around this center of Jew Jewish religious life to see if it is actually fulfilling its purpose of leading people to worship the true God? Of course, we know the answer to that question. Spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> it's not, because these things were all placeholders. The temple of God, the sacrifices of the animals, none of these things could actually fulfill the promises of God, only God himself could in Christ. And so he answers their cries, their hosannas and their blesses, just not in the way that they think. Like us, their expectations and idols are confronted because Jesus is a better and truer king. He is our king. Again, as Grant Osborne said, and we'll close here, the hosannas of God's people, unbeknownst to them, only come to pass through the cross. The hosannas of God's people, unbeknownst to them, only come to pass through the cross. What is viewed as the great tragedy of the death of Jesus of Nazareth becomes for us, the hope of the world, the only true path to triumph of the King. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning to us in Mark 11. And it is a word that invites us to come to this table because you have 
triumphed. You've conquered sin and death at the cross. You have bore the wrath of God for us, His justice that we deserve because we admit freely that we cannot perfectly keep the law, not by a long shot. Jesus, you came and righteously kept the law that you might be the pure and spotless lamb to lay down your life for the sins of the world. And yet you rose again on the third day. You not only conquered death, but you rose up from the grave to bring and fulfill every promise of God in the Old Testament that, Father, you would one day reconcile and unite your people to yourself again in a new garden and a new heavens and a new earth. This meal is a foretaste of that. This meal is a foretaste like Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We come with empty hands. We come very untriumphally according to the world. We come with all the subjective stuff going on inside and you lift up our heads. You say, believe me, trust me. I know you, I love you. Trust me as your king. You lift up our heads to remind us that even if today our faith is as small as a mustard seed, you are the king, the object of our faith. And even with tiny, weak, and frail faith, misappropriated, expecting all the wrong things sometimes, that faith is sufficient to connect us to you and you are always strong enough to save your children who you love. So do that now at your table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.